Welcome back to Songs for FRCR. Today we're doing renal transplant and the associated complications with a song suggestion from a GP in West Bromwich called Dr. Khaled. Some good lateral thinking there from Dr. Khaled. Transplant patients are indeed waiting for a long time. And that song is, of course, the brilliant five with Until the Time is Through. We're going to begin our session on renal transplants with an overview of the surgical technique because once you have that down then everything else becomes a tiny bit easier. So back to basics first of all, we all know that a transplanted kidney is placed extra peritoneally in the right iliac fossa. The stages of this procedure are as follows. Step one is to clamp the external iliac vein. Once that's been clamped, you then anastomose the renal vein to the external iliac vein that you've just clamped. The anastomosis is an end-to-side anastomosis, and I'll talk more about this in a few minutes. So we start off again, we clamp the external iliac vein, we then anastomose the renal vein to the external iliac vein. The next step is to clamp the external iliac artery, and again, as with the vein, you anastomose the renal artery to the external iliac artery. The next step is to fill the bladder. And once you fill it, you do that to identify the site of your anastomosis. Once the bladder is filled, you then do an end-to-side ureterocystostomy, which you create over a stent. And we, of course, end with homeostasis and then a drain insertion. So that's the basic surgical technique. And finally, as we all know from being harassed on call, all of these patients have a 24-hour post-operative baseline transplant kidney scan. So that's all I wanted to say. That was one minute and 30 seconds of the basic surgical technique. There are a few more things to mention that I've seen come up in exam questions, particularly on renal artery anatomy. So a very basic recap. The renal arteries come off the aorta at L1, L2, and they come off 
inferior or distal to the origin of the IMA. The left is shorter and takes a horizontal course. The right artery is longer because it needs to course behind the IVC and the right renal vein. Most patients, their renal arteries divide into two. The surgeon, of course, needs to be very aware of the renal artery anatomy. So we need to know the number of renal arteries and the branching pattern. In 30% of the population, there is an accessory renal artery more common on the left. That has come up in exams before. So remember that number, 30% of the population will have a different branching pattern. So an accessory renal artery more common on the left side. And in 10% of the population, again, remember that number, there is early branching of the renal artery. So it will branch before it reaches the renal hilum. So that was basic surgery and basic anatomy. But we do have to talk about one final thing, and that is the patching method of anastomoses. Before we move on to complications, the vascular anastomoses needs a passing mention, mainly because I've seen it come up in exam questions. So, I mentioned already these are an end-to-side anastomosis. The way that's done is you make an incision into the wall of your recipient vessel and attach the end of the other vessel. So the end of the renal vessel is attached to the side or through the side wall of the external iliac vessel. That's an end-to-side anastomosis. Fairly straightforward. The reason we do an end-to-side is because it has a much, much lower risk of stenosis compared to an end-to-end -end anastomosis. The second thing to remember is the patching method, which is commonly used in renal transplant surgery. So what is the patching method? I'm going to talk you through this. So the patching method is used when you're anastomosing two vessels, but one of them is of a much smaller caliber. So the renal vessel is of a much smaller caliber to the external iliac. The way this is done, as with the regular anastomoses, you make an incision in the side wall of the external iliac vessel. That stays the same. You then dissect your small vessel all the way back to its origin. So in this case, you dissect the renal vessel all the way back to the aorta. You then cut out a nice round elliptical patch of the aorta that attaches to the renal vessel. You push that patch through the opening that you've made in the external iliac artery, add a few retaining sutures to hold it in place and then do a nice continuous suture. Now this patch technique is a lot safer than just directly attaching the end of the small renal vessel onto the external iliac. Mainly because if you get a small thrombus on the suture line, then with the patch method, that small thrombus won't completely impede the circulation. But if you had directly attached the renal vessel to the external iliac, then a small thrombus will completely obliterate the lumen of the small vessel. You obviously can only take a patch of the aorta away if it's a cadaveric transplant. You can't obviously take a patch of the aorta if it's a live donor. If you don't understand why you can't take a patch of the aorta from a live donor, you have got bigger problems, my friend, than the 2A. 
the patch method and vascular anastomotic methods in general were pioneered by a chap called Alexis Carroll, whose work actually paved the way for transplant surgery. He was a French surgeon who was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work back in 1912. And the description of the patch method I've given you was actually taken from his own Nobel Prize acceptance speech on the 11th of December 1912. So there you go. We've just done basic surgical technique. We've done anatomy of the renal vessels and the patch method and vascular anastomoses in, I think, four minutes. So let's move on now to complications. Complications post-transplant can be either urological or they can be vascular. We're going to start with the urological complications and there are one, two, three, four that you need to know. We're going to start with the most common, which is a lymphocele. Lymphocele's are by far the most common cause of post-op perirenal fluid and they will occur in up to 25% of patients. They're usually asymptomatic, but they can be big enough to cause hydronephrosis, to cause lower limb edema, and they can sometimes calcify. They will look like what you expect a lymphocele to look like. So fluid collection, low attenuation on CT, and it will look like a seroma. Very occasionally calcified. Usually they will occur in the first couple of months postoperatively, but can occur at any time. So don't let timings limit you in an exam. You will see them medial to the transplant between the graft and the bladder. So from the top, lymphocele's by far the most common cause of a perirenal fluid collection postoperatively. Usually asymptomatic, but can be big enough to cause local mass effect, to cause hydronephrosis and lower limb edema. Usually within the first couple of months postoperatively, but don't let that fool you in an exam. They can happen at any time. You'll find them medial to the transplant between the graft and the bladder. And what you'll see is a seroma-like fluid collection. So usually round, low attenuation, very occasionally calcified. That's a lymphocele. So whereas a lymphocele, like I've said four or five times now, is in usually the first couple of months postoperatively, the next complication, a lot more rare than a lymphocele, a urinoma, occurs usually in the first two weeks. A urinoma you will mostly find in the perirenal space. 
How is it formed? Well, as urine leaks into the retroperitoneum, for whatever reason, the fat surrounding the urine will undergo lipolysis and it will create an encapsulated collection of urine, also known as a urinoma. As you'd expect, it's going to follow water signal on all imaging. Whereas it's usually perirenal, again, don't let that trick you in an exam. They can be in some very unexpected places. You can find urinomas in the thigh and in the scrotum. How will this patient present? Well, decreased urine output in the first couple of weeks post-transplant suggests that there is a urine leak somewhere. You do an ultrasound and you will see a well-defined anechoic, so water signal, lesion with no septations that is rapidly increasing in size. That's your urinoma. You can do a very easy ultrasound guided drain by your local friendly interventional radiologist and you send that fluid off. If the concentration of creatinine in that fluid is higher than the serum creatinine, then you know it's a urinoma and it's not a seroma or a lymphocele. Now, urinomas, if they're very big, can rupture and give you ascites or urine-filled ascites, and they can also get infected and become an abscess. Quick recap from the top before we take a musical break. We are doing complications of renal transplants and we're beginning with the urological complications. I've mentioned two so far, the most common of which, by far the most common, is lymphocytes. Lymph will leak for whatever reason, either you haven't ligated things properly, and it will occur in 25% of patients post-transplant surgery. These are usually asymptomatic, but they can get very big and cause significant mass effect, plus minus hydronephrosis, plus minus limb edema. You will usually find them one to two months post-operatively, but they can occur at any time. They will follow fluid signal and look like a seroma, a round, low attenuation collection, which is occasionally calcified. Most commonly, you will see them medial to the transplant between the graft and the urinary bladder. The next complication is a urinoma. And as we've said already, these can be in unexpected locations. While they're usually perirenal, you can find them in the scrotum and the thigh and other places. They will present with a decreased urine output, which will suggest that urine is leaking from somewhere. Do an ultrasound, you will see an anechoic, well-defined structure that is enlarging rapidly. An ultrasound-guided drain will give you a sample and you can then check for the concentration of creatinine. If it is higher than the serum creatinine, you know it's a urinoma. They can become infected and form an abscess. They can rupture if they get very big. You can also do scintigraphy to identify these. So radionuclide imaging is an option, in which case you will have to wait for the delayed images because the tracer will accumulate very slowly. That's it. That is lymphocele and urinoma. We'll take a break and then we'll do urine obstruction.
We are doing renal transplant complications and we are currently covering the urological complications. We've talked about the most common lymphocele, we've talked about urinoma and now we're going to talk about urine obstruction. This occurs in 2% of people and will occur within the first 6 months. Whereabouts will the urine obstruct? Well, more than 90% of ureteral stenoses are in the distal ureter. To be more specific, the majority of these patients that have ureteral obstruction or urine obstruction, the site of obstruction will be where the ureter is inserting into the bladder at the ureterocystostomy. The reasons for this could be many. There could be kinking, rejection, ischemia, which then causes scarring, so lots of reasons, but the site is usually at the ureterocystostomy. It's important to remember these patients will not present with the typical features of renal colic because the transplanted kidney has been denervated, so they won't have pain. What you'll find is a slowly rising creatinine level. That can be difficult to differentiate this from chronic rejection because that's often the only feature of rejection also. So what do you do? You do an ultrasound and that can be used to confirm your diagnosis of hydronephrosis. Remember you can get some mild to moderate dilatation of the transplanted system if the bladder is full. So if you see a full bladder, get them to pee and then ultrasound them again. The beauty of ultrasound is it will also show up any other causes of ureteral obstruction. Things like lymphocytes, hematomas, abscesses and urinomas that we've been talking about already. If the ultrasound is not helping then scintigraphy is always an option. It will demonstrate urinary obstruction. What you will see if there is only early or partial obstruction then you'll see good perfusion and prompt uptake of the radiotracer. But if there is any significant hydronephrosis or functionally significant hydronephrosis, then the radioactivity is going to be retained within the collecting system. You can then use the delayed images, which will be two to four hours later, and these will help you differentiate an obstructed ureter from a not obstructed ureter that's just dilated because obviously if it's unobstructed and just a bit dilated, then you will see clearance into the bladder. And how are we going to treat this? Well, they will need percutaneous nephrostomy in the first instance to relieve the obstruction. And once that's relieved, they can then allow other interventions like ureteral stents and balloon ureteroplasty. A good thing to remember is that balloon dilatation of the transplanted ureteral stricture can be successful in up to 90% of cases. By far the best results will be if the stricture is fresh, like a fresh surgical stricture, and obviously the worst results will be in patients with chronic ischemic strictures or areas of fibrosis within and around the ureter. So from the top, urine obstruction occurs within the first six months post-transplant and will occur in 2% of patients. The most common site or more than 90% occur in the distal ureter and the most common site is at the ureterocystostomy where the ureter inserts into the bladder. 
Why is there narrowing at this ureterovesical junction? Well, there can be lots of reasons. Ischemia, rejection, surgical or technical errors, kinking, and things like papillary necrosis, even calculi, fibrosis. The list is endless. The key thing to remember is that the transplanted kidney has been denervated. So these patients will not present typically they will simply have a rising creatinine level, which can be confusing because that is the same presentation for chronic rejection. What are you going to do? You're going to do an ultrasound and that will show hydronephrotic kidney. If there is a full bladder, get them to pee it out and ultrasound them again. That is a common exam question. You can use scintigraphy to demonstrate obstruction also, and these patients will then require percutaneous nephrostomy until they await a definitive procedure. In 90% of cases, a balloon ureteroplasty is successful, particularly if the stricture is fresh. So that was lymphocytes, urinomas, and urine obstruction, three of the urological complications of transplant. Now the others I'm not going to go into in much detail because they should be fairly obvious. Infection, there's nothing specific to say about that. Hematomas, again nothing specific to say they will look like hematomas on imaging and the only thing of note here is there will be a cold defect at scintigraphy. And finally an abscess, well that should be apparent from the question and the clinical scenario. So that's it. That's the ureteric or urological complications of renal transplant. We will now move on to the vascular complications. But first, take a breather. Vascular complications of renal transplant. If I was a betting person, I would say you are likely to get two questions on this in the exam. The answer to one is going to be renal artery stenosis and the answer to the other is going to be renal vein thrombosis. It's really worth learning them because it's a guaranteed two free marks. So let's start with renal artery stenosis. RAS will occur in the first year post-transplant. It can occur anywhere along the vessel, either before the anastomosis, at the anastomosis, or distal to the anastomosis. If you remember my little talk on the anastomotic techniques, remember that I said the end-to-end -end anastomosis has a three times higher risk of stenosis than the end-to-side anastomosis. So, how will you spot a renal artery stenosis on imaging? Well, there are four things you need to look for and four things they will mention in your exam. The first is a peak systolic velocity, a PSV of more than 200 centimetres per second. Commit that to memory. The second is a peak systolic velocity ratio. 
between the stenotic and the presynotic artery of 2 to 1. The third is spectral broadening distally, which will indicate turbulent flow. And finally, a tardis parvus waveform. Those are the four things you have to memorise. So in renal artery stenosis, the patient will present with increasing hypertension. And what you will find on ultrasound is a peak systolic velocity of more than 200 centimetres per second. A PSV ratio of the stenotic and pre-stenotic artery of 2 to 1. Spectral broadening distally indicating turbulent flow and a tardis parvus waveform. Memorise those four things. It's a guaranteed exam question. And how are you going to treat this? Well, percutaneous transluminal angioplasty plus minus stent insertion has a success rate in the literature of around 73%. That is renal artery stenosis. Renal vein thrombosis is next, and this is nowhere near as common as renal artery stenosis. It will occur in the first week post-transplant and in less than 5% of patients. The patients will present with a sudden and abrupt loss of urine function. There'll be swelling and tenderness over the graft site. Thrombosis of the renal vein can be precipitated by lots of different things. It can be either hypovolemia or slow flow fluid. There is some evidence to suggest that allografts in the left lower quadrant have a higher risk of renal vein thrombosis, which we think is because of compression of the left common iliac vein between the sacrum and the left common iliac artery. What will you see on ultrasound? Well, the kidney is very edematous. So in early ultrasound, you will see edema. You'll see big kidneys that are hypoechoic, so low echo kidneys early on with renal vein thrombosis. Late findings will be small and hyperechoic kidneys. Other features you may well see, you might see thrombus within the vein or reduced or absent venous flow. You will also most likely see increased resistance on the arterial side and that will result in a reversed diastolic flow on the Doppler images. On CT you can see cortical enhancement which is persistent with no parenchymal enhancement of the kidney and in transplant patients, MR venography will confirm your diagnosis. It's very, very important to recognise renal vein thrombosis early because you can save the graft if you can do a prompt thrombectomy. Despite this, graft infarction is common and you will ultimately end up doing a transplant nephrectomy to prevent secondary infection. So that was renal vein thrombosis and renal artery stenosis. We're going to go over them again before we take a break. We're going to go through both of these together so we can compare and contrast them. Renal artery stenosis will occur in the first year post-transplant, whereas renal vein thrombosis will occur in the first week. That's the first difference. Next are the imaging findings. 
renal artery stenosis, the four findings I said were a peak systolic velocity of more than 200 centimetres per second. That is taken from radiographics, but I do know of some books that suggest the upper limit is 180. So use your common sense in an exam. 200 centimetres per second is the peak systolic velocity upper limit. The PSV, peak systolic velocity ratio between the stenotic and pre-stenotic artery of 2 to 1. Spectral broadening distally indicating turbulent flow and a TARDIS parvus waveform. That's your four features of renal artery stenosis. Compared to the features of renal vein thrombosis early on, the edematous kidney will be big and hypoechoic. Later on, it will be small and hyperechoic. On Doppler, you will see, you may see thrombus in the lumen. You may see increased resistance in the renal artery with reversal of the diastolic flow in the artery. They will be reduced or absent venous flow. Treatment for renal artery stenosis is percutaneous transluminal angioplasty plus minus stent insertion, which has a success rate of around 73%. Renal vein thrombosis, you need to do prompt thrombectomy, but this is often too late and you will end up doing a nephrectomy to prevent secondary infection. With a renal vein thrombosis in an transplant patient, an MR renography will confirm your diagnosis. Finally, if we're suspecting a rejection, then it's very common to do a percutaneous kidney biopsy. If you do those, there are a couple of complications that can occur. The first of which is AV fistula and the second is a pseudoaneurysm. Fistulation, first of all, what you will see on imaging is high velocity flow in an isolated single segmental or interlobar artery and its paired vein. So high velocity flow in a single artery plus its paired vein, either a segmental or an interlobar artery. The feeding artery of the fistula will have a high velocity and a low resistance waveform, while the draining vein will show arterialization. That's fairly straightforward. The pseudoaneurysm is the other complication. On plain ultrasound, a pseudoaneurysm will just look like a simple or a complex renal cyst. When you put the colour on, however, you will obviously see very vascular flow within it. And most of these will resolve spontaneously. So most complications of percutaneous biopsies 
are managed conservatively. If a pseudoaneurysm is big, so larger than two centimeters, or if it's showing a progressive increase in size, in that case, we often do treat it. Otherwise, most of both of these complications are managed conservatively. I'm going to go over them one more time. So in AV fistula, you will see high velocity flow in a single vessel and its paired vein. So a single segmental or interlobar artery and its paired vein, you will see high velocity flow and low resistance waveform in the feeding artery and arterialization of the draining vein. A pseudoaneurysm will look like a simple cyst on plain ultrasound, but once you put the colour on, you will see very high velocity flow. Both are managed conservatively. So that's it. We have been through renal transplant, the surgical procedure, anatomy of the renal arteries, the techniques for vascular elastomoses, We've been through complications, urological and vascular. This was by no means an exhaustive list of complications, but it was the ones that are most frequently assessed in exam questions. So that's it. That was transplant and transplant rejection. We hope you learned something and hope you enjoyed that episode. We are on a bit of a renal streak this next week or so, so be prepared for some more kidney, adrenal, breast and GU talks in the next few days. Have a great week, keep revising and we will see you soon.